Welcome to the Mental Advantage Podcast. Whether you're an athlete trying to perform at your best when it counts the most, a coach or business leader trying to get more out of your team, or someone looking for more personal growth, this is the place for you. This podcast is your map to guide you to the right mindset, systems, and strategies you need to become the best version of yourself. And now, here's John Cullen and Brandon Allen. All right. Well, welcome to the show. We have uh, Roger Kitchen uh, of Power Mental Performance on the show tonight, Brandon. And, you know, this is one of those topics that we've probably touched on almost more than anything else on Mm -hmm. this show, other than talking about confidence and, um, you know, dealing with pressure and stuff like that. But it's culture, right? I mean, you and I both come from that business side of things and have played on a lot of sports teams and have coached a lot of sports teams and man, there's no secret to it. I mean, if you don't have that right culture, it's going to be for a a long season or a a long time as a company. Uh, For sure. I mean, you, you get exposed pretty easy, right? Um, Especially when you go up against either teams or organizations that have it. Um, It, 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 it's kind of like, you know, we reference rowing the boat a couple of times, but it really is. It, it would be the equivalent of having a five-man crew and only two of them are right. rowing. And, yeah. you know, you're going up against somebody that everybody is rowing and are in sync. And um, so, yeah, I mean, culture plays such a huge role. And it's, um, it's it in my opinion, um, you know, because not everybody has the ability to lean into a guy like Roger. Um, but it, it is becoming more and more difficult to build culture today, I think, because of what it takes. And I think with athletes or uh, just people in general, um, it's difficult for them at times to hold others accountable. Um, and, um, and so when you don't have that accountability, peer accountability, it, it can make it tough. Yeah. And, and how important leaders are, right? I mean, we talk about that with Roger is that, that, that leader, that coach, uh, that manager, whatever the case may be, vice president of an organization, CEO, they're the ones that are really critical in helping establish that. And all the things you just talked about there is having the, uh, you know, being able to develop that culture of trust and having those shared beliefs. And it's really making sure that everybody is aligned on what the goal is. Um, and we really, Roger does a great job of kind of helping us unpack some of those things. And he has that background, you know, of that employee development and uh, learning development. And he's taught a lot of leadership and management courses and consultant work. So just a really good subject matter expert, if you will, on, you know, what it takes uh, to develop the right culture and, um you know, how important it is. So that we were really fortunate to have him come on the show. And then we also uh, dig in a little bit to, you know, how you can make that something that's a part, it has to be something that's lived every day, right? Mm -hmm. It can't just be the words on the, on the wall, the poster board. You mentioned row the boat. I mean, it's, it's, I think one of the other things about culture that is so important is when you talk about really having that aligned uh, goal is you can, you can even have two people of five in the boat rowing, but as long as both people are rowing in synchronicity, at least you're moving forward. Right. The problem is I think a lot of times you get two people on one side of the boat that are rowing and then you're just rowing in circles. Then you're just going around and around and and you're right. And, And it's interesting though, you know, we ask a couple of questions about either, you know, significant roles and, and how, you know, different pivot points and stuff like that. And I think he has some really good answers, but it is, it was fascinating to me, especially on the significant side on the people that played a significant role in his life or are playing a significant role. And he absolutely fits that exact same yes mold. And so, um, um, it goes back to some of the references too about you attract, right? Certain cultures attract certain people. Um, and that's why they're successful. And I think 
you know, Roger attracts based upon, you know, his uh, servant leadership. He brings people towards him. He's extremely knowledgeable. And I think the listeners are in for a treat. Absolutely. So get your pen and paper ready. Here's Roger Kitchen. Well, Roger, welcome into the show. We uh, are so happy to have you with us tonight and uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I'm excited. I appreciate you having me on the show. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a culture junkie when it comes to teams and organizations. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. We can't wait. You know, one of the things, Roger, that uh, the listeners, of course, heard in the introduction that you are the founder and mental skills coach for Power Mental Performance. And I have to say, one of the things that sticks out to me when you talk about culture is, as you go through your social media, um, you know, and for the listeners, of course, it's at Roger Kitchen. So at Roger underscore Kitchen underscore Junior on Instagram and then at Power Mental Performance on Facebook. But Roger, every uh, picture seems like when you're working with teams, you've got them working in groups. You know, it's not one of those situations where it's individualistic uh, training. This is, hey, guys, we're going to stick together as a unit here. Was there some kind of purpose behind that? I mean, what what's the was that intentional in uh, in regard to your training? Yeah. So my background's in employee learning and development. So by trade, I've been doing learning and development. Uh, for organizations for 15 years. So a lot of platform time, a lot of facilitation, a lot of teaching training and movement always trumps sitting. And so when you get people up moving around, working in groups, mixing groups up, getting people to work with maybe people they don't necessarily hang out with on the team on a regular basis. Yeah. You're, you're trying to build a little bit of that camaraderie, get them a little bit engaged with maybe some people they don't get a chance to kind of hang out with. You know, one of my pillars, uh, one of the key results I always work towards when I when I work with a team is building positive team culture. So I'm always weaving things into my program that get athletes to work in groups, to work together and to work in solving problems. So it is very intentional by design. That's outstanding. And, you know, it's it's interesting. Um one of the things about your whole platform and the whole mental uh, performance piece of it is I love what you say there that, you know, being a competitive power lifter, right? I mean, speaking of getting yourself moving, is that you were your first client and that, you know, mental training works because it worked for you. What right. what impact did that have on you as a power lifter? Oh, man. So I got introduced to powerlifting in college. And fell in love with the sport, then graduate, life hits, right? Move, get married, have kids. I always stayed around the gym. I always liked to work out, but you know, I wasn't doing traditional powerlifting. And then um, I fell into the learning and development field, uh, working for the Army as a contractor, civil servant, got back into the gym, actually started doing a little bit of CrossFit as a hobbyist. And then, you know, got back into powerlifting. And then after 24 years, from my previous meet, um, I, I did one my senior year in college. 24 years later, I'm like, I'm going to get back into it. As crazy as that sounds, I'm going to get back into it. And I had moved over to NASA Marshall Space Flight Center here in Huntsville, was doing industrial organizational psychology over there. And lo and behold, my government client walks in my office one day and says, Roger, we're bringing a sports psychologist on our team to help with training high-performing teams and work with leaders. I'm like, all right, that's cool. And uh, I don't know what he's going to do, but sports psychology sounds really interesting. And as I was getting back into powerlifting, he and I sat in the same office. We became really good friends. And he just kind of started to unpack stuff for me. And I'm like, I'm nervous. I haven't done it for 24 years. And he just kind of walked me through the mental approach of getting me ready to compete again. And it just had such a huge impact on managing the stress, the nervousness, learning how to um, approach the meat from a different mental perspective and use that stress to my benefit, use a little bit of that anxiety to my benefit so that I could perform well. And once I got through the meat and every, you know, the dust settled, I'm like, look, every athlete needs this. Right. And so um, everything that I use on me and my competitive, you know, uh, background, I'm like, I'm my first client. I know it works. And so if people, um, you know, it's like if it works on me and I've implemented it and I, you know, I, 
use it day in, day out in my training and then get ready for competitions. I know it's going to help somebody else again with self confidence and focus, learning how to achieve goals, performing under pressure and, you know, contributing to a good team culture. This, this may be a difficult one because those, it seems like in everybody we talk to, it's such a layered, um, you know, the confidence and culture thing is it's very layered and complicated. But is there one thing that sticks out from your conversations with that sports psychologist early on that you're like has turned into your mantra that you could like share with the the listeners or or is there one thing like one place if somebody had to start that you would say, hey, why don't you look here or. um I think, you know, I don't know so much about the culture piece, but the one thing that really helped with my performance was learning how to breathe okay. and, and the visualization piece. Um, and that was just impactful for me to build those routines into my training and into competition. Uh, that just, it, it takes that edge off and just mm-hmm. allows you to just stay neutral so that you can perform and not let, and not let your emotions hijack you. Um, in terms of how that works culturally on a team, if you can get a team to buy in um, to those concepts, learning how to visualize, learning how to breathe, uh, being mindful, um, and picking up some of those concepts, and when they do it as a team, that's ah, pretty powerful because then everybody's moving in the same direction towards the same goal. Uh, everybody wants to win. Look, everybody wants to perform well. They want to perform under pressure. They want to do it even when it's hard and they want to perform at their best when it matters most. And so when you introduce a lot of these concepts, um, you're walking through it as a team together. And so that could be pretty powerful because it's like, we're all locked in our, you know, it's kind of the gladiator mantra, right? Where we're shield to shield going into battle. So um, that that's really how I think it could be impactful on a culture. You know, before we dive into culture, there's something I want to ask you because um, we have, and when you and I talked on the phone, I was sharing with you one of the, one of my favorite, uh, you know, lines or topics, I guess, in Urban Meyer's book above the line is when he talks about the performance pathway and that, that, that principle of leaders create culture, culture creates behaviors and behaviors get results. And I noticed when, you know, I know that you, uh, for example, have your master's degree in Christian uh, management and leadership. What was mm-hmm. it? I mean, leadership, we know Brandon and I both are, are business leaders and you, this is something that you talk about on a daily basis. What was it as you kind of look back on your life about leadership and management that got you so curious about that? What was, what was the about culture? No, just about leadership and management. And because eventually that's going to lead to culture. But do you remember what that kind of pivot point was for you that made you start to get so interested in, you know, the importance of leadership and creating good leaders and managers? Uh, I think it was kind of my own shortcomings. Oh, um, really? Yeah. And wanting to get better. And yeah. um, I always, you know, think about the people that had impacted you. Uh, through your business journey or, you know, wherever, you know, on a team, uh, in a church, whatever organization, I think there's always been people that crossed our paths that when we looked at them, we go, man, that person has the stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and deep down, you may not come out and say it, but you're like, I need to be like that. Um, and so, you know, when I went back and got my degree in Christian management and leadership, I was working for a Christian nonprofit here in Huntsville. And uh, I was doing it to get better. Uh, and I was doing it as a way to serve the organization uh, all along, knowing, I, you know, there's there's just areas of my leadership that I needed to get better in. So, um, you know, I think that's kind of why, you know, I gravitated toward that because like, I, you know, my saw needs to, my, my saw needs to be sharpened a little yeah. bit. And uh, there's always been people that have crossed my path that I've just been, you know, impressed by. And I was like, mm, man, I need to I need to up my game a little bit. And I need to I need to work on me in order to be able to impact other people. So it's you know, it's the analogy we always say in an airplane, right? When the masks drop down, you put the mask on you first and then you take care of other people. And that's essentially what I was doing. Um, and then, you know, I think at the end of the day, everything rises and falls on leadership. Chuck Swindoll said that. And so leaders set the tone for the organization. You know, there's, 
Um, if anything goes wrong, the leader takes, you know, the ownership of it. If everything goes right, then they point to other people in the organization and says, it's not me, it's them. Right. And so, you know, that's a powerful tone to set when you're not willing to accept any success and you're willing to accept where the organization's falling short and it, it rises and falls on me or you or whomever is leading that organization. Yeah, you you brought up something a minute ago, Roger, about culture and and you know as we start to dig into this, I think one of the things that's so clear, if you just search culture on the internet and you just search how to create culture, I don't care whether you're looking at you know a book like Culture Code by Daniel Coyle or if you're looking at um you know some article I saw some articles in Forbes and uh, an article that was in Stanford you hit on something a minute ago that's in every single one of these things and that's defining what your purpose is you know I know you and I both went through the Brian Kane um mental performance mastery right. program and he has his 10 pillars, of course. And of course, pillar number 10 is defining, you know, that, that right culture, uh, creating that right culture. And his, one of his first things he talks about is what are you, what's going to be your mission? Right. So yeah. why is that? Why do you think from your standpoint and working with some of the teams, that's so critical, uh, to be able to define that culture early on? Yeah. Define I think that, I, that I, mission, I should say. Yeah. I, I love that word mission because. Um, in my, in my time around the army, when I was a contractor and then civil servant mission was, I mean, the word mission's huge. Um, like, why are we doing what we're doing? You Mm -hmm. know, and that, you know, that's the compelling reason. So like our mission is based off that why and mission is what drives people. It's, it's what unites people, um, knowing what you're going after and the compelling, you know, when it's intrinsic, it's not for money, prestige or power. It's, you know, for, for teams, you know, what's the mission? It could be conference championship. It could be, you know, um, Westminster Christian Academy, you know, their mantra is build better men. You know, they're trying to do that through football, man. That's a compelling mission. You know, we're, we're not only are we able to make you the best football player possible, but we're, we're trying to teach you how to be a man and, and mature and have an impact on society and, and be a good husband and father and raise good families and contribute to your community. And man, we're doing it with football. And so, you know, those are compelling missions. And I feel like when people feel that sense of calling and have that sense of mission and look, the coach defines it, the coach comes in and says, this is the real deal. Now he may take input from coaches. He may take input from uh, the players, and that mission kind of gets crafted and morphed, but in the end of the day, in his head, he knows what he wants or she let's, let's, you know, you know, let's think about, you know, the volleyball and the basketball and some of the other female sports, um, ice hockey, those coaches know what they want. Yeah. And like they rally the troops around that purpose and that mission and, and let, let's get after it. And so that's why I think mission is so compelling and it's individualized for every coach and every team. It's interesting, Roger. You talk about the military and and you and and teams in general, and you see how sometimes coaches, wh- whether it's whether it's you know officers in the military or a coach, there always seems to be this level of having to kind of strip away things from what we've learned, you know, intrinsically to then build people back up to have to share a common goal or culture. Do you find that to be successful or have we kind of shifted away from that to where, you know, coaches are, are really trying to build off the strengths of the individuals that they have today and, and not really tear them down to build them back up. (sighs) Or is that a loaded a, question? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm sitting here as you're, as you're, I know exactly where you're going. So um, I think my answer is this. When you look at some of the great culture builders in any sport, think mm-hmm. of Phil Jackson. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of PJ, you know, uh, John and I were talking about PJ yeah. Fleck. PJ Fleck, Wooden. yeah. Yeah, Row the Boat, Nick Saban, John Wooden, mm-hmm. um, Pete Carroll, um, uh Pat Summit at University of Tennessee basketball. Uh, when you think about some of the great coaches, uh, they they built the culture 
And then I think what, what happens is they find people that fit that culture and they find people who are drawn to that culture versus trying to say, okay, um, here's our culture. And then like, we're going to try to, you, you know, you're not fitting into the culture. Um, you know, right, trying to right. take somebody who may not fit and, and ram them into that. I think they establish the culture and then they're looking for people who fit that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, now I have read some things, uh, in the last couple of years where Nick Saban's kind of flexed a little bit in terms of some of the rigidness around the process and his culture there, but he's not going to change. You know, there's not right. going to be a huge standard deviation there. When you go to play at University of Alabama, you know the deal. I recently just watched a great video. Uh, Coach Carville, Carville at University of Massachusetts uh, hockey, men's hockey team. If you guys haven't seen it, it's, it's an amazing. University of Massachusetts, when he took over the program, was last in Division I hockey. And within three years, they were playing for a national championship and lost. And then within five years, they won it. And so he talks about how he changed the culture there, turned it around. And his mantra is we, we recruit character over talent. And so going into University of Massachusetts hockey, there's only going to be a certain person that's going to fit that culture. And I, th- I think um, back to your original question, I think coaches are going to set the culture and there's going to be a little bit of that stripping down in the sense where there's going to be some things that you're just going to have to unlearn and then relearn in order to fit that culture, but it shouldn't be a huge shift. Sure. Yeah. You know, you, whereas you set like, it and like, you attract the, you attract what you're trying to attract. Yeah. So it, it's opposite in the military. Cause when you go into the boot camp in a military environment, they are stripping you down to build you back up in their own image. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the intent and purpose. And so, um, you know, from a military perspective, that's what's going on They're, They are purposely uh, changing whether you like it or not. You don't have a say in it. Like, you're going through boot camp. We're, we're breaking you down to build you back up into our image to make you a weapon to go protect uh, us against, you know, enemies foreign and domestic. So, it, you know, that that's that's the kind of the environment, you know, the military would be in and back to sports, even even in, in the line of business I'm in. I work for a global consulting firm and I just had this conversation with our COO today. There's only a certain kind of person drawn to consult the consulting world. Sure. Um, it's high, it's high pace. It's a high op tempo. You've got to have super, uh, emotional intelligence, interpersonal skill to deal with challenging problems and clients. And it, it's a different environment and not everybody fits it. And so, you know, we're mindful that that's the culture and we're also trying to figure out, okay, how do we still retain talent? How do we slow down attrition? Um, how do we keep people longer? What do we do to invest in them? to make it a good experience. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, certain jobs are just not for certain people. Sure. And that could be academia, could be hospital, could be banking, you know, you kind of fit that industry in the model and certain people just seem to really align with different industry or career fields. That makes sense. And, 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 and to back to your point about the military, they don't have a choice. They don't, they don't get to choose who decide, you know, who's joining the military. So they do have to maybe do a little more stripping away, right? So that makes sense. Yeah, the, the boot sense. camp, the boot camp, you know, I think I heard a statistic years ago, mid mid to late 2000s. I, th- um, I think it was the average American citizen, only 10 or 20% could meet the physical standards for the Army at that time. Um, I wow. Wow. Yeah. And so. I can I can't remember the exact number, but it was low. Um, but the point is boot camp weeds you out. Um, your first probably four years in the military. And look, I'm not, I, I have no military experience. I'm not prior military. I was in and around that environment for about five to six years. So I'm going to go on the record and say, I'm kind of in the cheap seats looking in. <laughs> um, so anybody that watches this, please reach out to me and go, Roger, you're crazy. That's not right. But um, you know, that, that's the intent and purpose right, uh, of a right. boot of a boot camp. Yeah. Well, and with look, I mean, with any unit, um, that goal is going to be so critical to establish early on too. It's that you know we talked about the mission. We talked about now you attract 
to Brandon's point and to what you're saying there is the right people to go after this mission. But it's also, and this is one I one of the things I really loved about what what Kaner uh brought to the table is with MVP is that mission, vision, and principles, core, right? Yeah, core principles. Once you once you have established the mission, the vision piece is what's it look like? And I think for every good culture, you need to establish for people is, okay, this is what we're after. This is our goal. But what are we, how are we going to know when we, when we get there? What, how do we define success? And then, you know, you talk about PJ Fleck and Sabin and Wooden and all those. Those guys were very intentional about what that was going to look like. And then they were also intentional about what are the core behaviors, core principles, those things that we're going to live and breathe on a daily basis. And I think about some of the best cultures and you think about, you know, like I know, um, you know, not to go down a whole path about Brian Kane, but I mean, one of the things he did with, with um, Schlossnagel at uh, TCU baseball when, when he was still there uh, is that they developed that C, right? It's that, you know, selfless and energy and excellence were the three things that C uh, the acronym C stood for. Um, I know we've talked on this show before about Gary Gilmore and like selfless and relentless, the two principles he had at coastal Carolina baseball. And I shared with you when we were talking on the phone at Bridgewater college, the softball program I worked with uh, for a couple of years, we developed dogs, you know, driven one focus, grit, selflessness. My point being that whatever your goal is, you have to mm-hmm. then as a leader share with everybody else's, what are the things we're going to do intentionally that's going to get us, uh, give us the best chance to achieve this goal. Right. Uh, you know, in violent agreement with you. And I think uh, the really good teams are good on execution. Uh, I think the, I think when the coach thinks like the CEO uh, in terms of how he or she manages their staff, uh, they're very intentional about roles and responsibilities with each coach. Um, so Coach LeBlanc at Westminster Christian Academy was a GA for uh, Mike Shula, and then he was there uh, for uh, Nick Saban's first year. And one of the things that Nick Saban did was everybody on the staff's important and made that very evident even down to the GA level. So, you know, in in traditional staffing systems, your GAs are on the bottom of the food chain, um, doing all the grunt work and Nick Saban just kind of leveled the the staff and said, we're all yeah. equal. We're all important. Um, that's a leadership behavior that sends a message to everybody on the staff's important and everybody has a, a valuable contribution to the program. And so back to your point, uh, knowing what you want and being able to execute and get after it kind of separates the good from the great, even from average to good. Um, knowing roles and responsibilities for every staff, uh, every person on the staff in terms of what's expected, what our message is, how we do it day in, day out, what those behaviors look like. Um, the really great ones are delegating, assigning roles and responsibilities, making it super clear, and then holding people accountable daily and weekly to make sure it happens. Because look, we all, we all know and we hear the stories. Culture can be, you know, be posters and sayings on a wall and then nobody follows it. Right. Yep. Um, but like I said, the good to great, uh, average to good, uh, are always the ones that are relentless on the execution, the roles and responsibilities, um, having a CEO mindset of getting it done and then holding people accountable. It's not words. It's so true. That accountability piece and Brandon and I talk about this all the time on the show is, so critical because it's setting the standard. It's what does good look like? What, what, what is it that we're all agreeing that are those core behaviors we're going to have to do on a consistent basis to get us there? But then it's holding each other accountable and it's, it's saying, I trust you enough that you can go do your job, but I'm also going to hold that point of excellence you talked about earlier, the, you know, the standard and be able to come back and trusting each other to be able to say, Hey, I don't know if you're doing the things that are, are we're, you know, all agreed we would be doing that's going to get us to that, uh, to that level of, of, you know, accomplishment that we're all seeking. Um, you and I talked on the phone about the fact that, you know, one of the things, um, you know, also in Urban Meyer's book was that whole, you know, what are we willing to tolerate? What if you're, uh, yeah. if, you're if you're willing to tolerate somebody being, you know, at a 
at a low standard, um, then you're going to get poor results. And, and when you know that you've arrived as a culture, I think it's when everybody is comfortable holding each other accountable and nobody's getting upset or, you know, uh, blaming each other for those things. Yeah. Um, so in business that one of Netflix core values, this was years ago. I don't know if it's true today, but they had a saying is we, one of their core values is we don't tolerate brilliant jerks. And so in business, how many times do we see technically savvy people who are just train wrecks, but they kept, they're kept around because of, you know, the size of their brain and how technically smart they are. Uh, and when you tolerate that, you end up leading a toxic environment and you bring on a whole bunch of other challenges. Um, so my mind was one kind of going to different things as you talked about that. But, you know, one of the drills I do with our teams and I, and I, you know, I got this from Brian Kane was, uh, we'll do those above the line, below the line. Uh, I'll do a workshop on that with a team. And we talk, the concept's easy to pick up. Hey, as a player, um, as a person, uh, and if you're still in school as a student, what are those above the line behaviors that help benefit the team? And then what are those behaviors that are below the line that hurt the team? And they get it. It's super easy. And you break them up in the groups and they get it. And then you say, uh, it, the cool thing is you find themes. So if I've got four or five groups of like five to six athletes, you start to see the themes emerge. Don't be late. Don't talk back to coaches. Be coachable. Get good grades, you know, and, and they'll, they'll come up with all these themes. Uh, don't complain, um, you know, 100% effort at all times. Quit goofing around. The hardest part for any team uh, is, is the person is the personal is the peer to peer athlete to athlete accountability. And to your point, when you've really matured as a culture, the coaches really aren't the enforcers anymore. Uh, the staff are not the enforcers. It's the it's the people around you that are holding everybody uh, accountable. But it is the hardest piece in business when teams are evaluated on how well they hold others accountable. It's usually, usually there's a dimension of like five criteria. It's like trust, communication, how well they resolve conflict, um, personal kind of, you know, peer to peer accountability, and then getting results of those five dimensions. The accountability to accountability piece is all always scores the lowest, but it builds. You've got to have trust to your point. You have to have trust. You have to be willing to communicate. You have to be able to resolve conflict. You have to have a mechanisms in place by which, how do we do it? Conflict, resolving conflict is uncomfortable. Having difficult conversations is uncomfortable. But when some of those foundational things are worked out, it makes holding people accountable easier. But it takes a lot of heavy lifting to get to that point. I mean, coaches and managers and leaders have to be very intentional about making an environment that's psychologically safe, as we say in business, but on in a co in a team environment, making the environment, you know, trust. What are we doing that builds trust on this team? How do we communicate? How do we resolve problems? And then when you sort of fit those things in the model, then the, that accountability piece kind of works itself out. It's not perfect, right. but it, it makes it a little bit easier. So that that's kind of where my next question was going, Roger, is, is as a coach, I see how difficult it is Um to get kids today to hold each other accountable, right? They don't, they don't want to be that guy um, or that girl that calls someone out for not adhering to what we agreed upon. So is it, is it beholden to the coach? Like you said, there is a lot of heavy lifting at the beginning and, and there's a lot of, um, I don't know the best way to put it, but is it, does it really just boil down to trust when you're talking about high school students and kids that they feel like, okay, I can do this because one, the coach has my back and we've all agreed upon it and I'm not going to be perceived. I, I feel like perception amongst those age groups is so difficult to navigate for them. Um, yeah. And it just seems to be getting more and more difficult. Is there any insight as to why that may be the case, do you think? Well, you know, and I'm, I'm going to think off the top of my head. When you look at a high school team, you've got ninth through 12th grade uh, that could be on a team, male or female. 
think about the age difference between a ninth grader and a 12th grader. Think about the maturity level between a ninth grader and a 12th grader. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a significantly huge leap. So I think in high school, it's much harder because you don't want to be that guy or that girl that, you know, maybe saying something to somebody like, look, you need to be on time and quit goofing off. Because at that age, peer pressure and wanting to look cool and be the, sure. be the man or the girl, you know, BMOC or BWOC right. um, plays in. There's a reason only 7% leave high school and go on and play college sports, right? That's what the kind of the latest number is. And there's a lot of different reasons for that, but some of it's talent. Not everybody goes on and plays. Some people don't even want to. They had a great high school career and they're done. Um, they may have not have found the right. But the point is when you, I've seen a difference in terms of teaching mental performance and building culture a lot easier at the college level than high school, just because of maturity. And just because of the step now from high school to college. Yeah. You know, it's, it. I hope the parents that are listening uh, and coaches that are listening really heard what you just said. I thought it was a really uh, key um, observation there as far as the age gap between that ninth and, and 12th grader. Because, it's huge. You know, one of the things I think happens uh, and we're all guilty of it, right? Is like, yeah, as a parent, you're like, say to Johnny, who's a ninth grader, you know, why can't you be more like Jimmy? Who's that, that senior, you know? And it's like, well, Jimmy was just like Johnny probably when he was a freshman too, you know, he, he had some of the immaturity. He wasn't always on top of his ball game uh, the way that, you know, he is of course now as a senior. So it's just always being mindful of that. I think is important uh, when you're, you know, whether you're parenting or coaching is just understanding that there's going to be some shortcomings that just come from just natural maturity. Um, and so I'm glad that you brought that up. You know, the other thing is, and I mentioned the culture code earlier, um, the Daniel Coyle's book, those are two, it's some people there. So Daniel Coyle for the listeners has written two books. I would highly recommend one's called the talent code. Um, which is just basically this idea that you're not born with talent. It's one of those things that you develop over time through a lot of work and all that good stuff. Um, but then also the culture code and what he did with the culture code is he spent like four years embedding, embedding himself with like eight or nine, I think different, uh, organizations that really had separated themselves of having great culture and success. And he, comes down uh, what I love about that is we've already touched on some of these things, but it came down to three key lessons from that successful groups feel safe. You mentioned mm-hmm. safety earlier, successful mm-hmm. groups share their vulnerabilities and know their real advantages. And then the last one, yeah. of course, we've talked about, which is clear and unchanged purpose. But one of the things that I wanted to touch on, because you brought up the word trust and it's so key is he says in that book is, you know, most people think you have to establish the trust up front and that allows you to do the vulnerability piece in his mind. It's if you establish those vulnerabilities early on, that's what creates the trust. You, you just flip those two things around. And I think that, you know, as we talk about successful groups and I think about some of the ones that I've been a part of, that was that open piece. We talk about in mental performance all the time. The key is if you can develop uh, that, that, routine and habit of assessing like constant, you know, continuous assessment of like, you know, how am I doing towards my goals? Uh, How am I doing towards these uh, behavior changes is that kind of vulnerability to be able to say to somebody. And we touched on it a minute ago is like, Hey, I I don't know if you see this. I talk about it. This as blind spots all the time as a leader, right. Is um, helping people identify blind spots, but, I think that is really such a key thing. If we're going to be talking about culture and dig a little bit deeper in that is that whole vulnerability being open. So we can all help to create culture by just being more open individually uh, to, you know, people. It's honest assessment of us giving us feedback because that's going to be so critical as we move forward as well. Yeah. I think if you spend time around a team long enough, um, just if you sit back and just listen to how teammates talk, yeah, just, just sit and listen. Don't talk much yourself, maybe ask questions, but just listen to, you know, how they talk when they're in the weight room and on the field and in team meetings. Um, you'll find it's really, really easy to find out 
um, when there's openness and yeah. people are allowed to be vulnerable, worse they don't. So in the business world, uh, there was there was a actually when you're talking about the culture code, there's a book that validates that five dysfunctions of a team by Patrick Lencioni. And he talks a lot about the vulnerability has to come first in order to get the trust. And so um, and he'll talk about, you know, there's a lack of trust if you go into a meeting and nobody's talking. So, like, you know, if the leader the leader comes in, here's our agenda and you start going around and like. You know, John, you know, give us an update. I don't got any updates, you know, and then you go to the next person, you know, what's, you know, what do you, what's going on in your world? And then they'll, they'll go with something like super safe that can't be challenged. Yes. But I, I've been on teams like that where you have like one person that likes to snipe everything that you do, um, undermines kind of the leader at the, at the time. And, you know, you, you get dinged once or twice and you're like, okay, I know what to say and not to say. And so those meetings, you know, Patrick Lencioni says, look, if there's not healthy debate in those meetings, if there's not constructive conflict, if there's not vulnerability, uh, you know, there's no trust. And so when you think about it, if the trust is there, um, I'm willing to have healthy conflict and then I can commit. Like, look, you go into a room, you hash it out, you come up with a plan and you may not agree with the plan. But if you're willing to commit to it, at least you've got to weigh in on it. Right. You got to have your say. You may not have won, you may not have agreed, at least you felt heard. And then from there, it, it, you know, those other things that come in terms of holding others accountable and getting the results that you want, they kind of build off those things. Um, yeah. But back to the point I was trying to make, when you hang out with a team, just listen to how they talk, listen to how the coaches talk, just be that fly on the wall and you'll, you'll pick up pretty quick. It won't take many, me- excuse me, won't take many meetings and you're going to go, hmm, something's different here. It's, it, it is really, uh, honestly the truth. I mean, and we've all been there and we've been, like you said, on both ends of it. I've been on highly functioning, you know, really strong cultures, been a part of those. And I've been a part of some business in the business world, especially some cultures and some teams that it just wasn't that way. And you, you, you hit it right out of the park with the communication piece. It's so critical. Actually, it's interesting. I was doing some research for this topic today. Uh, there was a article that in Forbes, um, that was talking about 64% of employees feel like they don't have a strong work culture. So this is, oh, wow. we're, we're talking about, right? I mean, the reason that this is such a hot topic and I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of listeners listening this as they're driving down the road. Um, and just saying, you know, and nodding their head like, yeah, that's my my organization. Yeah, we're the <laughs> yeah. ones that are missing some of that because, you know, that cul- corporate culture really does define a business. And it just makes all the difference in the world, not only in achieving success, but in retaining employees. Like, I mean, most of the time that people and you know this and because this is what you do on a daily basis, but. The number one reason people leave their jobs has less to do with money or any of those things. And number one is managers. It's leaders that they have. Uh, and part of it's just because they just have not created great cultures. Yeah. And it's interesting. There is additional research now emerging that even if you have a great manager, people will still leave because now, given the great resignation, they're looking for a better opportunity. And the job market is in such a place that there's more opportunity. So traditionally, it has been the manager and the leader. Think about the transfer portal. Right. Um, sure. Think about some of the great opportunities that some of you know these athletes have had on the teams that they came into college. And then they're like, yeah, I like it here, but I'm going to put my name in the hat and see what happens and where I land. And uh, it, there's just some uniqueness now that it just complicates things a little bit better, a little bit better, a little makes it a little bit more challenging, I guess is the right word. Um, now the glass half full on that is, you know, with the transfer portal, it does open up more opportunity for coaches to build their teams, uh, in a different way that they hadn't, you know, had before. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that play into why somebody will stick around in a program or why they'll stick around in, you know, in a particular field. Uh, but John, back to your point, um, I think that manager, that coach is just huge. Um, and so regardless of where you work and where you play, if you love your coach and you love that leader, you're going to stay. Yeah. I mean, they just have a huge impact on you. 
They really do. And it's, it's also, it's that foundation. I used to do an exercise and I still do it when I don't work with teams as much as I used to, but I still do it with some of the teams that I work with. And I've done it with some business teams of what I call the Jenga principle. And if you get the game of Jenga, you remember uh, playing mm-hmm. that, whether you're as a kid or an adult, uh, now you, you can get the bigger blocks. I'm not going to lug those around. I still use the little, the little blocks, but the key thing about that game that you notice is the reason that as you're taking things out, the better your foundation, the more weak, the more like things that are being removed, the more it can sustain itself and it holds and it doesn't fall over. Right. But it always the key is the foundation. So if you can maintain a good foundation, whether it's having clearly defined principles like we talked about earlier, having a clearly defined mission like we talked about, but it's all foundational. And the more foundation you have, the more that you can remove a piece here. And that might be a particular business challenge or it might be a challenge that you're facing as a sports team and keep stacking it on and just keep stacking on. But again, if that foundation is clear, you're going to, I mean, I'm always amazed sometimes when people are pulling out a piece of wood and stacking on, like, there's no way that thing's going to hold up, right? <laughs> but it does because it's all in the way that that foundation's built. It's a little cheesy maybe at times, but it does send a good message to everybody that, you know, keeping in mind that uh, if you, everybody buys into that and, and that foundation is there. And then I think the other thing we didn't mention earlier, Roger, about leaders is as leaders, I think it's so important when you're talking about culture is to constantly keep it in front of the team or the, uh, organization. Yeah. you know, I mean, it's like we, you said it earlier, like row the boat and some of those things, row the boat didn't just happen. And, and process didn't just happen with Saban. It was constantly reinforced on a, almost a daily basis. You got to keep bringing things back to those principles. Yeah. In business, there's a lot of research around why change management efforts fail. So mm-hmm. I, I look at it like when a coach or a program, you get a coach that comes in and does a rebuild, right? They want to put their culture in place and they have a way by which they execute that. I see change management coming in from the business side of the house and, and traditional change management efforts. There's three reasons why those fail. One is there's not enough senior leader involvement in that effort. Two, there's not enough communication. And three, the people don't feel involved. When you look at some of those rebuild efforts, put lay that model on there. The senior leaders, which are the coaches and the staff, are heavily involved in that. And if they're doing it right, they're communicating the daylights out of it to the point where they're sick and tired of it. Yeah. And, and, and either through like a leadership council on a team or a team of captains or a more mature, like at the professional level, there's just more mature, uh, players on that team that have influence. They're a part of that process as well. Um, and so those three things really help the coach make the change, get the buy-in, make it stick that they want to see happen. And so, um, what, what, uh, I'm trying to think of a story I heard. It was an NBA coach. Um, I don't know if it was Steve. I think it might have might be Steve Kerr. May have been Phil Jackson. But somebody had commented, you know, along the lines as they were just super collaborative with the players on the team. It wasn't like they come in and say, "This is the way we're doing it, and this is how we're going to do it." At that level. Right. A collaborative approach is probably going to be the best because they're like, look, I'm getting paid millions of dollars. So I can go play anywhere I want yeah. to. <laughs> like, yeah. I'll need you. I'll find somebody else to lead me to a championship. So coaches have a different leadership style, but it, I think it was either Steve Kerr or Phil Jackson that was super collaborative in their approach and wanted that input and information from it, certain it people. It was Steve Kerr, and I can't, Roger, for the life of me, think of what book I read this in, but you're exactly right, because they talked in that book about how he um, reached out to players over the offseason and, and brought them in from a collaboration standpoint, too. That was yeah. also part of that collaboration. I can't remember. I, I In I fact, never, I just saw an yeah. interview that he did after coming out of the championship last year and like even on timeouts, he's like, what, do you, what play do you guys want to run? How are you seeing it on the floor? It may be different than how I'm seeing it. And actually, let's see, you got to – that doesn't work for every team. Right. Right? Like yeah. you can't do that with the for Brooklyn sure. Nets. 
Right. You just can't, you can't do that with the Lakers. Yeah. Um, you can do that on the Golden State Warriors because of Steve Kerr and how he's led and how he's built the team and the culture he's put in there and the guys that he's put around, they buy in. So on a timeout, he's like, what play do you want to run? What do you see? And he'll take it all in and he'll go, let's do it. Or he'll go, no, let's run this. And then they go, okay, cool. Cause they can commit to it because they yeah. built the trust. Well, there's, and they, they, and they, and they've managed, you know, whatever tension or conflict over the years and they're willing to commit and execute. So, yeah. And One then they'll the, go uh, out and perform, right? Cause then they're not scared to fail because yeah. all of that is there. It's there. Yeah. It, Absolutely. It takes a long time to get there. And it takes Steve Kerr is a unique leader. If you listen to his life story about his dad and his dad right. being killed over in Israel when he was in academia and Steve was in the States playing in Arizona. I mean, like he's just a special human being um, just because of some of the life adversity he's had to face and how he handled it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want, I almost want to say it was Jim Appenrose's book, uh, the winner's mind or something like that. Uh, we had him on the show. I can't remember, but I'm almost positive that was the book. Um, one thing, and I know I want to be cognizant of time because I want to get to a big question I have for you here in a minute, but I also, uh, would be remiss, I think, when, and I think this is the challenge people have when they talk about culture on these podcasts is they often just keep it to the team or, or organizational culture. But listeners need to know you have your own personal culture too. And what happens is when you are, you are the product of all of these different cultures that you are involved in. And because you are, it no doubt has a direct impact and effect on, on who you are personally, but that personal culture really informs how you're going to act on a daily basis. It It's how you identify your own core principles that you're going to have and work and live intentionally by. And, what those behaviors are going to be that you're going to do on a consistent basis. that's going to help you achieve the goals that you have set for yourself. So just like yeah. we talked about that MVP process, cause I know, and I'm sure you do as well. I, one of the things I took from Kane uh, in the 10 principles was I sat down personally and do an MVP process about once a quarter. It's how this podcast came to be actually was one of my intentions. As far as I had a mission that came from a servant leadership mindset, but one of my visions, what that looked like and how it was going to manifest itself was going to be a podcast. Uh, and so I think it's really important when you sit down on a, you, whether you do it a quarterly or every six months basis is to figure out what's my personal culture going to be. What, are, what's, what am I after? What do I want to have on the gravestone, right? What's that look like? And then what am I going to do intentionally, whether it's those above the line intentional behaviors or those unintentional behaviors I want to try to avoid? Yeah, I uh, can't agree with you more. It's probably something I don't do enough of. Um, I know every year I set my priorities like, okay, this is kind of what I think my year is going to look like. Um, these are my priorities for the year. My, actually, my wife and I'll talk about it. You know, what's our year going to look like? What do we really want to prioritize? And I literally, cause I used to overcommit to things and say yes to too much. And so literally uh, I'll draw a circle and it's only three to five priorities. And then anything else that comes in, if it doesn't align to one of those three to five priorities, I, I say no. Um, and I, I do that annually. Um, depending on where I'm at with power metal performance or my competing in, in power lifting. Um, so a, a little over a year ago, I came up with this model and this would be a good conversation for the next time we get together. I came up with these 10 principles um, in terms of how to achieve greatness. And it was just for me. Uh, I had goals that I wanted to accomplish in a given year for power lifting um, and so I just sat down, it was a, a Sharpie marker and a notebook pen and notebook. And I said, these are the 10 things I need to do as a power lifter in order to be successful this year. But it, it was, um, it was based off the, the purpose or the premise of most people just don't wake up to do something greater than themselves. And I said, I want to wake up this year and do something greater than myself and understand why I'm doing it 
And that's kind of how it all flushed out. And then I turned it into a model that I use with teams now. So we talk about purpose and how that impacts motivation. And if you really want to do something significant in your life, here's 10 key principles that just have to be there or it's going to be really difficult. And so, and I have it on my squat rack in my garage. Uh, I still have the Sharpie notebook piece taped to my squat rack. And when I'm out there training, I look at it and I'm like, all right, what principle do I need today? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm in the front seat of the struggle bus today and it's just <laughs> hard and I just don't feel like being here, but what principle do I need to lean on today? And, um, you know, so that was a really healthy drill that I did a little over a year ago and still impacting me today. Well, I mean, look, you hit on something and I I'm, could smack myself for not bringing this up earlier, but that's the whole why, right? Is it anchors you. It gives you something that you can anchor back to. Uh, those principles are something you can anchor back to. It's a commitment you've made for yourself. I love that. I mean, I'm writing that down like, you know, we're definitely going to have to have you back on to talk about the 10 principles of how to achieve greatness. Um, yeah, last- it all comes out. And I'll just say that why is like for some people, it's a calling. They just feel called to do something. For others, it's just a passion. Um, you know, but there's something that's deeply intrinsic about why they do what they do. And it just, that, that's, that feeds everything else. Absolutely. So talk to the listeners about power mental performance. Let's, let's let them know what they can expect, um, how they get in touch with you. We, we talked about the website earlier. We'll give that of course, in the uh, show intro as well, but what, what can they expect when they get in touch with you? Uh, Who all are you open to work with? So, you know, my service is one-on-one coaching with teams, coaches, and athletes. So it really depends on the needs. So I do a lot of one-on-one coaching with athletes, uh, help them with their mental performance. A lot of times coaches are referring athletes to me, all sports. Uh, you know, I've worked with uh, baseball, football, basketball players, um, working with some Olympic style weightlifters right now that want to be Olympic hopefuls. So they're in my wheelhouse. So I love that uh, with my powerlifting background, but a lot of one-on-one coaching with individual athletes, but I love sitting in with teams, getting embedded in their culture uh, as an extension of their staff. And, you know, typically when a coach reaches out to me, it's just uh, that coach and I sitting down having a conversation in terms of, you know, what's working really well for your program and, you know, what would be the reason to work with a mental performance coach? Where do you feel like the gaps are and really, you know, set up an individualized plan for that particular team and coach so that they can achieve the goals and their mission, right, for, you know, their program. And so um, that's typically what, you know, initially when people come to talk to me, that's what I'm doing. But I I fall back on five key results, increase self-confidence, improve focus, achieve goals, perform under pressure, and create a positive team culture. And generally speaking, when I talk to coaches, they're like, yeah, uh, I'm struggling with like one of those or five or three uh, in terms of our program. Um, And then they're like, and as I'm talking to them, they're already, they have athletes in their mind like so-and-so struggles with confidence shown another one just doesn't you know they practice phenomenal but when they get into game situation they have a hard time performing under pressure um and so some of those those things emerge too in the conversation but um that that's really kind of the the elevator pitch on power mental performance uh you've given out the contact information i'm on social media instagram facebook and linkedin as well and, you know, that's just the easiest way to get a hold of me. I, lo- I love it. I, you know, it's, I really enjoy what, following you on social media. Uh, we won't get into this now, but one of the go to, to Roger's social media and look at the uh, post he had about cross country and the difference between running. Oh, yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I thought that was really spot on. Um, you know, I, Brandon and I have talked about this, the difference between, people who play baseball and baseball players. And there's a big difference oh, between those two things. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, but I mean, it is good content and it's all, you talked about the why and what's the innate thing that draws you and, 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 you know, I, I want to end with this because I have a question for you. Um, it's something that I'm 
going to start asking all of our guests. And so you're going to be the first one who gets this question. All right. I get to blaze the trail, right? You get to blaze the trail. You're the pioneer. But I do. Okay. Uh, I, I've, I've been on a big kick and I'm actually uh, going to be starting a book here pretty soon as part of the research for that. But I've been on a big kick about significance and impact, mm. right? Um, and just, you know, that goal of significance, really, I think if we can all shoot for more significance in our life, uh, in being significant to others, really, uh, that's, it's really critically important because I think, uh, organically you're going to do a lot of good and you'll have the good, the right intentions there. So my question for you, Roger, is who have been the most significant people in your life? Uh, maybe one or two. And then what were some of the characteristics that made them have such an impact on your life? Oh, okay. Uh, man, thanks for tapping me uh, on that question. Um, so I, you know, obviously I think the, the easy button to answer the question is like, obviously family, right? Because right. they make the sacrifice in time. So my, my wife and my sons and my parents have been super supportive of the mental performance coaching. Um, because when you say yes to teams, you say no to family, you know, you're traveling and, and those things. And they've been really uh, accepting of that to answer the other, the other piece of that question, the people that have the most impact on me are the ones that I reached out to and said, Hey, can I pick your brain for 30 minutes? And they go, yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of people I cold called on social media and said, Hey, I'm a mental performance coach. I'm, you know, five, six years into this. I want to just pick your brain. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. So I've talked, I cold called Justin Sua, who's a mental performance coach for Tampa Bay Devil Rays. I talked to him on the way home from a cross country meet one day because he was just willing to, to talk to me. Um, Graham Betchhart, who's an NBA mental skills coach. Uh, I, he, I reached out to him through a, a mutual friend and he's like, yeah. So like none of these guys know who I am, but they're just willing to, to say, yeah, I'll talk to you. Chad McGee, who's doing great work on meditation up at Wisconsin, reached out to him and said, I would, I just want to talk. So anybody that picks up the phone and responds to my request just to talk shop for 30 minutes and learn more, that's who's had the most impact in my life because one, it shows humility that they're not too big to talk to somebody they don't know three, they're willing to give or two, they're willing to give back um, and share what's in their head and not hoard it just for themselves. And three, it's just, you know, kind of selfless service. They're just willing to, to help somebody else. So, you know, I can rattle off a bunch of other names um, of people that I just cold called and said, Hey man, would you, would you mind talking to me? And they go, yeah, sure. No problem. And so those, those are the kind of people that have had the biggest impact on me. And then I've met a lot of great leaders through NASA in my time there. And even with the army that I just thought they were inspirational and motivational. And like, I'm not a motivational speaker. I am not wired like that. Right. I'm not like, I'm not like ET, the hip hop preacher, Eric Thomas, if you follow him. Right. <laughs> I do. I love, e. I love <laughs> that guy. I'm like, I wish I had like the energy he falls asleep with. Um, I'm wired more like a teacher. So I, I say I'm a motivational teacher. I'm just not a motivational speaker. Right. Um, I, I'm better at teaching and training um, than motivational speaking. So when I see people wired like that, that's inspirational to me too. Um, Cause I, I'm, I'm in the closet. Like I wish I was like them, but I'm like, Roger, you got to stay in your wheelhouse and, yeah. and, and know your swim lane. Know thyself. That's right. Yeah. You know, cause if I get out there and try to do that, it just comes off wrong and land, it just doesn't land right. But when I stay true to myself in terms of being a motivational teacher, a motivational trainer, then it just works a lot better for me. Well, you, you're, it's, it's a, uh, first of all, you, you really hit it out of the park there with your answer. Uh, so that'll be a good way to kind of be a trailblazer for everybody else who gets that question in the future. I will say Brandon and I would definitely concur in this mental performance arena uh, that everybody has been. I mean, we say all the time we've had way more better guests than we ever hoped to have on this, uh, <laughs> on this show yeah. or deserve because of the fact that um, they're also willing to just share and to talk and they mm -hmm. want to. It's just the way they're wired. They want to help. They Whether it's just another coach, whether it's an athlete, a client, whatever the case may be. And, um, and, you know, you're amongst those people For and sure. we really appreciate you taking the time tonight to I appreciate that. Thank with you. us. Uh, yeah. 
you know, but we have great respect for you and what you're doing and working with all the people that you're working with, both leaders and coaches, as well as the athletes themselves. So keep doing what you're doing, man. We're going to definitely have you back here sometime in the future and we'll break down some more of this stuff and uh, hopefully help people become a little bit better uh, as a result of it. Man, I love it. You didn't scare me off. I'm willing to come back. <laughs> uh, Good. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I loved it. I appreciate the time. Uh, like I said, I can talk to a blank wall. So you guys uh, are one step above that. So yeah, <laughs> there you go. Good. <laughs> we'll take it. Well, right, we, we appreciate it, Roger. <laughs> Have a great night, man. We appreciate you. You're you. great. Thank yeah. you. Stay in touch. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Want to provide feedback or stay up to date with the show? Visit our Instagram page at Mental Advantage Podcast, or you can send us an email at podcast at mentaladvantage.net. To have John Cullen work with you or your team, please write to him at john.cullen at mentaladvantage.net. Thanks for listening to today's episode.